All right, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy. Uh, we're going to look at uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17 today. It's on page 1051, if you have one of our Bibles. Uh, we're going to continue our series looking at our values here at Redeemer, things that we hold as vitally important to the life and the ministry of this church, and things that we want to give particular emphasis to as we grow together, independence upon and confidence in Jesus. This is a refrain that you're going to hear me and, and Ben and everyone else uh, who has um, committed themselves to this church. This is the refrain that we need to constantly remind ourselves of. Our dependence is not in ourselves. It's in Christ. Our confidence is not in ourselves. It's in Christ. And we continue to grow in these things together. And we do that by helping each other connect the realities of the gospel to the realities of our lives. So you'll find these values listed uh, on the handout. Um, if you didn't pick one up in the last couple of weeks, I think we still have some more back on the table there. If you haven't grabbed one and you need one and we can't find one, um, I will make sure that we have more next week so that you can see that. These values are also listed on our website, RedeemerMinunk.com as well. So you can look through those, and they all have scriptures to, um, to back them up because they're all driven by God's word. And over the past two weeks, we've focused on that first value, which is God's word. We talked about the necessity of it. We talked about the sufficiency of it for our lives. This week, we're going we're gonna to move to the next value on that list, and, and it's called reality, okay? So what is that? What, what does that even mean? Well, we need to know what's true. Reality is reality. Reality is truth. It's what's real, right? And we need to know what's true, and that means that we've got to be committed then to, to honesty, to, be, to take an honest look at ourselves and an honest look at Jesus, and we need to help others do the same, especially in light of our culture's current obsession with things like virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, and so on. And in light of our culture's current determination to empower every individual to live in his or, or, or her own self-created truth. You, you get to define your reality, is what our culture says. When you're unhappy with your current reality, our culture's answer is to make a new one where you fee, feel free to be your quote-unquote true self. It's ultimately a quest for authenticity, and we need to see this as a good thing right? The quest for authenticity, it's a good thing because God has given us that desire. We actually want to know who we are. We're on a quest to find out our true identity. But that pursuit, this, this quest, uh, pursuit of authenticity, it's a hopeless pursuit when we chase after inauthentic things and we label those as reality. It doesn't work. Our culture wants to separate honesty from reality. But in our passage this morning, Paul's going to show us that the only way to true, authentic life is to actually be honest about what is real. Paul most likely wrote this letter to Timothy after they'd spent about a decade serving together as co-laborers in gospel ministry. By the time of this letter, Paul uh, had sent Timothy to uh, the, the, the city of Ephesus, to shepherd the church, to be a pastor there and confront those who were teaching false things about Jesus and what it means to follow him. Paul sent this letter to Timothy to instruct him and remind him on how the realities of the gospel ought to produce godliness in the lives of 
believers and shape the conduct of the church. It's a shorter passage, so I want to read it all up front and then ask the Lord to open our eyes and hearts to humbly receive this word, and then we'll dig in uh, together. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, your word is eternal. It stands firm. And your faithfulness continues throughout all the earth. We pray that we would see that reality this morning as we look to Jesus Christ, who's not only the author and the perfecter of our faith, but our creator and our redeemer, in whom our true identity is found. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things here. Open our hearts that we might behold the grace of Jesus Christ and believe yet again and fix our eyes on him. We pray this in his name. Amen. We live in a society that is just as confused about personal identity as it is obsessed with it, driven to figure it out, and yet always changing always looking for something else because we're never satisfied, right? On one hand, the motto of our culture is be your true self. But on the other hand, the practice of our culture is to live in the, in the reality or the virtual reality of an online world where you can filter your pictures, you can edit your videos, you can, you can change yourself any way you want and present that to the world and say, this is the true me. What we're going to see from our passage this morning, though, and I think Paul will make clear for us, is, is this. This is the main point of our message, too. If we want to be our true selves, we, we must live in the realities of the gospel. Our true selves are never found in an online world. They're found right here in God's word. If we want to be our true selves, we must live in the realities of the gospel. Now, because the, rea- the gospel is centered on Jesus himself, and Jesus is God, and because the gospel is applicable to all of life, it's like a diamond, right? If you, if you turn a diamond and you let the light shine on it, 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 it changes. It, you see these multifaceted beauty, glory of this diamond. We could turn this gospel over and over and over and be wowed again and again and again by the beauty of it. We don't actually have time to, to, uh, to explore all of the, the, the ways that the realities of the gospel apply to the realities of our life this morning. And so we're going to let our passage narrow these things for us, okay? Our passage today is going to help us focus on four fundamental realities of the gospel that we all need to, to be willing to take an honest look at. So here they are. First one, there is only one God. 
There is only one God. Number two, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Number three, and such a glorious one, Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. And number four, we must believe in Jesus in order to be saved. There is only one God. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners, and we must believe in Jesus in order to be saved. Let's look at the first reality. There's only one God. And, and in order to do this, in order to understand this fully, we actually need to start in verse 17, okay? So let's look again at what that says. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, your translation might add in only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Now, in this passage, we, we already read it this morning, but, but Paul just talked about the mercy that he has received through Jesus Christ. And as he's, as he's proclaiming this gospel reality yet again, he can't help but spontaneously break out in a hymn of praise to Jesus or, or to, to God. And, now, and look at how he describes this, this God who deserves honor and glory forever and ever. He calls him the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Now, if we're going to take an honest look at ourselves, we have to admit that these descriptions cannot accurately be applied to us, right? To be eternal means that you have always existed. So that means that if you have a birth date, you're out, Right? To be immortal means that you are not subject to decay and death. Anybody not feel the pains in your body? Anybody, right? This rules out all of humanity, right? Because no human being has the power or the ability to overcome death on his or her own. We don't have it in us. Or somebody would have done it by now. And the rest of us would have followed suit, right? Because nobody wants to die. Anybody invisible in here? If you are, I cannot see your hand raised. <laughs> now, I had fun with that one. We chuckle, though, because we know, right, that this is an unreasonable thing. It's unreasonable for any one of us to claim invisibility. Why? Because it's obvious that none of us are. It's obvious. It's a reality. It's the truth. And yet we live in a culture that has obscured reality so much that it actually wouldn't be outside the realm of possibility for a person to identify as invisible and demand that everyone else accept that as truth. This is the product of a culture that says that you get to create your own identity, you get to be the ruler of your life, you deserve to be praised by everyone else around you. In other words, you are the only God. You are the only God. But we have to ask this question. How can everyone be the only one? How can everyone be the only one? The only way for you to be the only God is for you to also be the God of everyone else. In order for no one else to be able to impose their will on you, you have to impose your will on them. 
In order for no one else to be able to exercise authority over you, you have to exercise authority over them. In order for no one else to be able to tell you what is right and wrong, you have to tell them what is right and wrong. In order for no one, nobody else to be able to tell you what to believe, you have to tell them what to believe. The irony is that when our culture tells you to believe what you want about yourself, our culture is telling you what to believe, right? Let me give you a, an example. Back in 2002, a, a Pulitzer Prize winner, a writer for the New York Times, gave a commencement address to a group of college graduates, and she told them this, each of you is as different as your fingertips. That's true, right? That's true. But then she said this, why should you march to any lockstep? Our love of lockstep is our greatest curse, the source of all that bedevils us. It's the source of homophobia, xenophobia, racism, sexism, terrorism, bigotry of every variety and hue because it tells us that there is one right way to do things, to look, to behave, to feel, when the only right way is to feel your heart hammering inside you and listen to what its timpani is saying. Did you catch what she said there? She scorned the thought that there could be only one right way and then immediately turned around and said, the only right way is this. The only right way is this. Now, the deception is that her only right way allows for an infinite number of right ways because it allows for everyone to follow their own heart. But it's impossible for a society to function when everybody follows the drumbeat of their own heart. You ever tried to listen to a song where all the instruments are playing at their own tempo? Anybody have that on their playlist? No matter how you try to spin it, the reality is those instruments are not working together to create some sort of harmony. They're not, they're not working together with one another. They're opposing one another. It's just an, a bunch of unpleasant noise, right? You see, when everyone is God, then no one is. When everyone is God, then no one is. And if we're honest, we'll see that, excuse me, the reality is that there is only one God. And it's not you, and it's not me. It's the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, who deserves honor and glory forever and ever. And the reality is that our greatest curse and the source of all that bedevils us is not actually our love of lockstep. It's actually our love of ourselves. And that brings us to the second fundamental gospel reality that we need to take an honest look at. We're all sinners in need of a savior. Look at verse 12 through 14. I give thanks to Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, just before this, in chapter 1, Paul was talking about false teachers who were misusing the law and misleading people in the church. He reminded Timothy that the purpose of the law, excuse me, was to expose the reality of the human condition by revealing the ways that people live contrary to the gospel. And here Paul says, you know, I, I also lived 
contrary to the gospel. This was my life as well. This gospel that I preach was not the gospel that I followed. Verse 13, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. Now, we might expect that from someone who hates God. But Paul was devoutly religious. He called himself zealous for God. He was a man who was convinced that he was serving God. He was a Jewish Pharisee who held strictly to the law of Moses and to to the traditions of the elders, and he prided himself on his adherence to that law and to those traditions. But he blasphemed Jesus by denying that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. And he persecuted Christians because of their adherence to Christ. And when he says that he was an arrogant man, it doesn't just mean that he was conceited or, and boastful, although that's part of it. Paul wrote this letter in Greek to Timothy, and in the Greek it gives a more sinister picture. He said, I was aggressive. I was, I was vehemently opposed to Christ and all who believed in him. I was an enraged man who made it my personal mission to hunt down Christians, throw them in prison, and see to it that they were put to death for following Christ. It was my single-handed, uh, or my goal to, to single-handedly destroy the church. And I thought I was righteous for doing so. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an arrogant man. But now the man who formerly persecuted the church is preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And what's more here in verse 12, he's actually thanking the Christ whom he once hated. And he's readily acknowledging that it's Jesus himself who has not only appointed him for this gospel ministry, but actually strengthened him to carry it out. Paul essentially says, Jesus considered me faithful even though I was everything but faithful even though I was completely and entirely, utterly unfaithful. So how can that be possible? What is there in Paul that would, that would make Jesus go, yeah, that's the guy? There's nothing, right? How is it possible then? Paul gives us the answer in verse 13. But I received mercy. Mercy. I acted out of ignorance and unbelief, but Jesus was merciful to me anyway. Now, by claiming ignorance, Paul was not excusing his sin as if to say, listen, I didn't know any better, so I shouldn't be held accountable, right? It wasn't really my fault. He's readily acknowledging his own guilt here. Paul knows that he's unworthy to receive anything from Christ except for condemnation, except for righteous judgment because of his unrighteous sin. But he's led to joyful thanksgiving here because he knows that he has not received judgment. He's received mercy and grace from Jesus instead. Now, we could define mercy as not getting the judgment that we deserve. And we could define grace as getting the blessing that we don't deserve. Paul deserved death for blaspheming Christ and arrogantly persecuting the church. But instead of getting the judgment that he deserved, he was given the blessing of eternal life and was appointed by Jesus to preach the gospel that he once fought so hard to disprove. Paul didn't deserve life at all, let alone this gospel ministry. But the grace of Jesus overflowed, Paul says. It abounded And Jesus replaced Paul's unbelief with faith, and he replaced Paul's hatred with love. 
And maybe you're sitting here thinking, all right, well, I know I'm not God. That's, that's clear, right? But I'm still a good person. I don't judge others. My, I mind my own business. I don't tell other people how to live their lives. I go to church. I try to help people. I'm not a blasphemer. I'm not a persecutor. I'm not a violent person. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not hurting anybody. So why do I need a Savior? Well, you need a Savior for the same reason that I need a Savior. Because none of us are actually inherently good. None of us are actually inherently good. If we say that we're good, we have to qualify what we mean by good. We have to be able to measure goodness somehow. And the problem is that we use the wrong measuring stick to calibrate goodness. We compare ourselves to other people when we should be comparing ourselves to God. And the only way to accurately compare ourselves to God is to actually look at what God's word has to say about who he is and what it has to say about who we are. If we take an honest look at his word, here's what we'll find. Psalm 119, 68 says that God is good and he does what is good. Common refrain found throughout the Psalms, I read one in Psalm 100 this morning for our, our call to worship, is this, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. He's good. His faithful love endures forever throughout all generations. 1 John 1, 5 tells us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Psalm 145, 17 says that the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and faithful in all of his acts. So what does the word of God say about us? Psalm 143 verse 2 says, No one alive is righteous in God's sight. No one alive is righteous in God's sight. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 both say that God looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. But all have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one, not even one. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, there is certainly no one righteous on earth who does good and never sins. Jesus himself says in Mark 10.18 that no one is good except for God alone. Now we could keep going, but I think the point is clear here. To be good, according to God's word, is to be perfect. It's to be righteous it's to be faithful. That means that none of us can honestly say I'm a good person without actually making God out to be a liar because God himself has said he is the only one that is good. That means that we are not good. God's word tells us why this is true. Romans 3.23 says that all, everybody, has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners and that's the bad news for us because Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. This is why we can't be immortal. We've given ourselves the death blow by our own sin. This means that we, none of us can honestly say, look, I'm not hurting anybody. Why? Because if you have sin in your heart, sin is always destructive. It's always harmful, which means it always hurts you and most of the time, it's also hurting someone else. You see, the world tells us that the problem is outside of us and the solution is inside of us. It chants the same 
mantra a million different ways through movies and music and TV shows and books and social media. Look inside yourself. Look inside yourself and find your strength, your power, your wisdom, your peace, your happiness, your truth. Trust what you feel. Follow your heart and you can't go wrong. You ever heard these things? Well, God's word tells us this. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. It's incurable. Who can understand it? That's Jeremiah 17, 9. You see, a deceitful heart makes a really bad compass for your life. Why? Because it will always lead you astray. Don't follow your heart. I think this helps us understand the draw for things like movies about superheroes and multiverses. We know something's broken in our world, but we don't know how to fix it, and so we hope for another world, right? Something that's better. If it's wrong here, it might not be wrong there. And we really want to do good. We really want good to triumph over evil. That's why most of the stories you read and see and listen to have the good guy winning at the end. But the world says to look inside you, and so we do. And we desperately hope to find the superhero within. But if we're willing to take an honest look inside ourselves, the reality is there's no superhero in there. There's only a supervillain. Why? Because sin has corrupted us through and through. Through and through. We'll find that the brokenness of the world around us is actually the result of the evil that lives within us. Yeah, yes, bad things happen to us. We know this. But we also contribute to the destructive nature of the world. Because sin is always destructive. It's always harmful. When we look inside ourselves, honestly, we'll see that we can't follow our own heart. Why? Because we actually need a new one. We need a new one. We'll see that we can't be the Savior because we need a Savior. We take an honest look at ourselves. We're confronted with this sobering reality of our overwhelming sin and need. But when we take an honest look at Jesus, we're actually presented with this glorious reality of God's gracious remedy and provision. We need a new heart. And God, through Christ, has promised to give us exactly that. And that brings us to the third fundamental gospel reality that we need to take an honest look at. Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. Look at verse 15 through 17. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, to the king immortal, eternal, the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now we see why Paul breaks out into this spontaneous hymn of praise in verse 17. God has not left us to, to follow our sinful hearts aimlessly in this broken world. He sent his son into the world to, to save sinners. 
This is the heart of the gospel. Paul said it once already in verse 13, and he repeats it here in verse 16. But I received mercy. I received mercy even though he was formerly a blasphemer, even though he was formerly a persecutor, even though he was formerly a vicious, arrogant man, even though he followed his own sinful heart, Paul received mercy. Paul knows that he's not the only sinner, but he readily calls himself the worst sinner because of the way he viciously blasphemed Jesus and persecuted the church. He also calls himself the worst of all sinners because he's preached this gospel for so long that the, that the more the, a person understands the realities of the gospel and the more they re, uh, mature in Christ, the more that person is aware of the depth of their own sin and their ongoing need for Jesus. If you've been a believer for a long time and you revel in this gospel, you know what Paul is getting at here. It's like the further we go, the more sensitive we become to our failures. But the more we cling to Jesus because of it. Paul's fully aware of the magnitude of his sin and that puts him in awe of the magnitude of God's grace. And so Paul also calls himself the worst of sinners here in order to offer real hope to every sinner. The reality is if Paul can't live for himself, I mean like this guy was top-notch, like rule follower, you know, Pharisee, like, like if we're going to compare ourselves to someone else, we don't want to compare ourselves to Paul, right? But if he can't live for himself, that means that neither can you or I. And if Paul can't save himself, then that means that neither can you or I. But here's the glory of the gospel. If we can't follow our own heart, here, here's how we get to see God's heart. Paul says it right here. If Jesus Christ can save Paul, then he can save you and he can save me. Jesus can save anybody. Paul's even though is our even though. Even though we were dead in our sins, even though we were enemies of God, even though we were acting in ignorance and unbelief, Christ Jesus came into the world so that we could receive mercy. Paul wants to remind Timothy and us that Jesus has the utmost patience for even the utmost of sinners. That means that none of us need to pretend that we're better than we really are. We don't have to live in a world of filters. We don't need to filter our lives and try to hide things that we don't want anybody else to see. Instead, we can freely confess to God what he already sees clearly. The whole of our sin all that we've ever done wrong, the corruption of our hearts, our need. And we can receive mercy when we come to God because Jesus received judgment when he came into the world. When he came, Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He never sinned, not even one time. I can't even fathom that. I'm sure I've sinned multiple times already this morning. Jesus was truly a good person in every way. And in his perfect obedience, Jesus carried out the Father's will and he laid his own life down for the undeserving, for those who are not good. He took the place of sinners on the cross and he received what sinners deserve, the Father's wrath, so that sinners could receive the blessing that we don't deserve, 
the Father's forgiveness and Christ's righteousness. Jesus died so that God's grace could overflow to blasphemers and persecutors and arrogant people, to those who act out of ignorance and in unbelief, and he rose from the dead to give sinners eternal life, immortality with him and in him. If Jesus did all this for Paul, the worst of sinners, then he can do this for any sinner. This is the great hope of this gospel reality. If Jesus can save Paul, he can save anyone. But we need to understand that just because this can be a reality for anybody, that doesn't mean that it will be the reality for everybody. Because this great hope that Paul's just laid out with, uh, for us here, it requires a response. And that leads us to the fourth and final fundamental reality of the gospel that we all need to take an honest look at. We must believe in Jesus in order to be saved. Look at verse 16 again. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to who? To those who would believe in him for eternal life. Yes, if Jesus can save Paul, he can save anyone. But only those who believe in Jesus for eternal life will be saved. We just finished working our way through John's gospel a few weeks ago. You, get, you remember what John said to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why didn't he send his son into the world to condemn the world? Because the world's already condemned in its sin. Jesus continues on. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. You see, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, but sinners must believe in Jesus in order to be saved. Jesus himself is clear. If you don't believe in him, then you are already condemned in your sin. Why? Because your heart is already deceitful. It's already corrupt. Our culture will tell you, listen, you were born that way. And Jesus says, I came so that you could be born again. A new way. Paul would tell you that you're acting out of ignorance and unbelief just like he once did, just like we've all done. But the whole reason that Paul talks about the mercy that he received is so that you can receive the same mercy. The whole reason that he talks about Jesus' extraordinary patience with him is so that you would see Jesus' extraordinary patience with you and you would turn to Jesus in faith. In Luke 5.32, Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Romans 2.4, Paul asks, listen, do you despise the riches of his kindness, his restraint, his patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance, to repentance. To repent is to turn away from your sin and to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. To believe in him is to tr entrust yourself completely to him. So hear Jesus, hear Paul, hear me this morning, hear God's word beckon you this. Don't remain condemned in your sin. 
Don't despise the riches of God's kindness that's intended to lead you to repentance. Don't ignore Christ's demonstration of extraordinary patience. Utmost patience. Incredible patience with Paul that's meant to be an example for you. Believe in Jesus for eternal life. Repent. Flee from your sin and run to Jesus for mercy. Don't follow your own sinful heart. It only leads to condemnation and death. Instead, why not follow the kind and patient heart of God that leads to salvation and life in Jesus Christ? Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're struggling with your identity. You have feelings that you don't know what to do with. You're wondering how to, you're supposed to follow your heart when you don't even know what your heart really wants. You're frustrated and confused and you just want answers, but you feel burdened because our culture says, hey, you have the answers, figure it out. When you look inside yourself, you don't like what you see, but you feel this social pressure to present yourself as someone who is fully confident in who you are. In a culture that says you are what you feel, what you feel is trapped. I want you to know that you're not alone in that feeling. This is the message of scripture. We're all trapped. We're all enslaved to something that we cannot free ourselves from. This is why Jesus came. You don't have to create your own identity. The Bible tells us that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made. God has created you in his image. You're a human being. He's made you in his image, and nothing else in creation can take that, can, can claim that. You have value and worth because God himself has made you. But scripture is also honest that we've all corrupted that image with our sin. This is the beauty of the gospel, though. This God who created you, he sent his son to redeem you, to make you new again, to recreate you, to give you a new heart and a new life and a new identity in him. He came to relieve your burden. Matthew, he says, is anybody tired? Anybody weary? Burdened and heavy laden? Come to me, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly of heart. Take my burden, take my yoke upon you, it's light. Jesus came to relieve your burden and rescue you from the trap of sin. He is the answer that you're looking for. You can be fully confident in who you are when you're fully confident in who he is because when you entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, you become one with him. There's no need to keep struggling in your identity. Why not rest your hope in Christ?
For those of us who have a new identity in Jesus, we can give thanks along with Paul that Christ has given us this ministry of the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all apostles like Paul, but it does mean that we who believe this gospel have been appointed by Jesus to go out and proclaim it to others, to be proclaimers of this gospel, that along with Paul, we can confidently declare this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, this is the reality This is the honest truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst. But if Jesus can save me, then he can save you too. Listen, there's no need to filter our lives for others who feel the same need to filter theirs. If we want to be true to ourselves, if we want to be our true selves, then we must live in the realities of the gospel. We need to take an honest look at ourselves and an honest look at Jesus. And when we do that, we'll find that there is only one God. That we're all sinners in need of a Savior. That Jesus Christ is the glorious Savior of sinners. And that we must believe in Jesus in order to be saved. But when we entrust ourselves to him, he puts our obsession and our confusion about our own personal identity to rest because we can be confident that our identity now rests eternally, immortally in him. Now, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be all glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can be honest about our sins, weaknesses, and failures because we can be honest about Jesus' triumph over all things. We pray that you would help us to run to him, to throw off the things that hinder us, to come to him naked and unafraid because he cares for us and holds us, remakes us, renews us, redeems us. Father, would you help us to be proclaimers of this glorious gospel so that others can look to Jesus for their own identity, be found in him, be made new, recreated, so that this king gets the glory and the honor forever and ever. Amen.